Hey there, welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can live lives that unleash more courage and more love in our living. Not just in the big ways that are splashed on the news and feel kind of out of reach or only for those amazing people, but the type of courage and love that is possible for all of us in our lives that can start microscopic, but can over time build to be truly transformative for our world. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and today we are continuing our series on regeneration. Last week, Gretchen preached about how regeneration is is something that we participate in, that life itself is regenerating, and it is our work that we don't have to do it all. In fact, what we need to do is just let it happen. Sometimes get out of the way of finding that which brings us joy, of faithfully being open to the seeds of life being planted, and that maybe we don't need to do anything. Now, today's message is is in that vein, but it, it takes a little bit of a different tact, because what I'm sharing today is about how so often we can feel stuck. So often we can feel in despair that regeneration isn't possible. And so what do we do in those moments? On Sunday morning, as I was heading to church, I was taking my son to church with me. My husband was traveling, and so he was going to hang out at church for a bit. And I looked at the weather, and it was below freezing. And so I reminded him that he needed to get a jacket. And my son said, I don't know where my jacket is. And I said, well, why don't you try the place where all the jackets are, right? You know, let's take the first step. And he went over to the rack and looked at the jackets and turned to me and said, I do, it's not there. And I looked at the rack um, and I saw his jacket. In his defense, it was partially obscured. Only half of it was showing, but it was definitely there. It was at that moment where from my mouth came the words that my mother used to say to me, you got to look with your hands. Some of you might have been thinking I was going to say something else, like if it was a snake, it would have bit you, which is actually what I said next. But what I did say first was, you got to look with your hands. Now, I have ADHD, and one of the things about ADHD, as well as some of my other learning disabilities, is that sometimes it's hard to notice things in the space, because if it's not right in front of me, if I don't see it, it's kind of impossible for me to remember that it's there. And so some, if something is behind something, it's like it doesn't exist. It's a, a tragic flaw in my object permanence brain. And so I have had to learn that if I'm looking for something, I need to look with my hands, that I need to physically move things around, change the vista, change the perspective, change the circumstances so that I can actually find what I'm looking for that you've got to look with your hands. And that is actually what we are exploring today, is that sometimes for regeneration, for us to feel hopeful, to feel hope-filled, we need to look not with our minds, our thoughts, not with our hearts, even our feelings, but with our hands. That hope is something that we find by doing. Now, when I shared this message on Sunday, whew, it was heavy. 
Good. Yeah, my deepest hope is that sometimes when we acknowledge heaviness, it has just a little less power on us. Joanna Macy reflects on the nature of fear and despair is that often fear has two heads. The first is our fear of the thing itself. But the second more insidious fear is our fear that if we acknowledge our fear, that we'll be, we will be overcome with despair. And so my hope as we dive into this question of what does it mean to hope in this world? My hope is that that fear of acknowledging what's going on within ourselves is dissipated a little bit because we can feel even you listening to this podcast that you are not alone in the maybe crisis of faith you're having in humanity or the sheer weight of reality and that we can acknowledge it and that it's that it doesn't become the end of the story quite frankly that acknowledging it is just our first step our pathway towards something even more powerful which is our capacity well to do something about it so i'm going to turn it over to myself because welcome to podcast land in this message, in this sermon, which is entitled, Hope is a Verb. Often I start a sermon with a story, something from my life, something that's relatable. But today I'm going old school. Today I'm starting the sermon with a definition. Hope. Hope is that power to hold on to the world as it is and as it could be and to not turn our back on either, no matter what, while knowing that there is something you can do to bridge the gap between, which means hope is hard work. And that's why most of us, including myself, often settle for one of two knockoff versions that we pretend are hope, optimism and complacency. Let's start with optimism. Do you know what drunk goggles are? Were there these kind of scientific looking goggles that you put on your eyes and it distorts your vision, like you're intoxicated? I had to wear these while I was in school. We were doing one of those anti-drinking and driving campaigns. And when you put them on, they would, well, get you to walk the line. And most of us, as we tried to put one foot in front of the other, would fall over. <laughs> Our vision so disoriented that you couldn't figure out what was really happening. Optimism is like drunk goggles. We put them on and it distorts reality. We think the world is one way when it is actually something else. And we drunkenly step out, convinced that everything will be okay. Even as we stumble, each step challenging the belief that what we see is the truth, and yet we still cling to it, falling over and over again until one day we just don't bother getting up. Now, on the other hand, the other cheap knockoff of hope is complacency. I think of complacency as the combination of the world's worst alarm clock attached to the most comfortable bed. For when it does happen to wake you up, the alarm clock, instead of insisting that you're to leave the comfort of the bed, just whispers to you and says, don't worry. 
everyone else is just as comfortable as you. What's the rush? Or maybe even worse, it whispers, what could you actually do? Hope lives in the vast chasm where optimism and complacency cannot enter. And if you're like me, I cling to my goggles and pine for that bed because they are luxuries. As theologian Miguel de la Torre reminds us, they're luxuries because of my privilege. For those on society's margins who are forced to the margin, if they are to survive, they have to see reality without distortion. And they cannot stay out of the action because their lives depend on it. Now, I used to love this oft-quoted saying by the Unitarian minister Theodore Parker. Parker was that 19th century abolitionist who preached with a pistol to defend the escaped slaves in his basement. The quote goes something like this. I know you've heard it. The arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. MLK echoed it. Barack Obama repeated it. And when I first heard it, I always thought it was a statement of fact. A fact that aligned at the time with my rather naive and optimistic view of humanity and history. But in seminary, I discovered the full quotation from Parker and realized that he was not speaking about facts at all. Here's the full quote. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eyes reach but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. But I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure that it bends towards justice. This is no statement of fact, not a truth about reality that Parker is conveying, not a verifiable movement towards justice, but rather a statement of faith. That without being able to see the big picture or fast forward into the future, something in Parker's life convinced him that he could define the arc of what he couldn't see of the universe and saw that it bended towards goodness. This is a statement of faith, not fact. And I know what some of you might be thinking. I'm at a Unitarian Universalist church. I'm a humanist. I'm an atheist. I don't do faith. But to that, I lovingly and respectfully say, yes, you do. We all do. Because faith is trust. And we all, no matter our theological stripes, tr put our trust in people or values or practices, all of these without empirical proof of their rightness, correctness, or eventual utility. Because we, hate to break it to you, are mere mortals who cannot accurately calculate the curve and trajectory of our own lives, let alone sometimes our own days, let alone the moral arc of the universe. And that's when faith comes in. Faith, the human practice of trusting something, 
trusting something to guide us through the white water body blows of life and to guide us through the blinding, flashing lights of information overload towards a path that we hope leads to a life of dignity, of wholeness, of beauty, and love. And it's here that there is a trap, a faith trap, that we religious liberals often get stuck in time and time again. For we choose an optimistic faith over a hopeful one. At the vending machine of life, we select optimism or sometimes complacency over and over again because we want to believe that everything will get better and will work out in the end. And when it does, we point it out and say, see, nothing to worry about. We worked hard. Despite the fact that it's probably our privilege that shielded us from the unequal distribution of pain that plagues our world. And when it doesn't, when it doesn't work out, when we choose optimism, staking our claim that humanity is just getting better, that a rising tide floats all boats as we tune out the voices of coastal nations that remind us that sometimes a rising tide means utter devastation, when we choose optimism and war breaks out, when we choose optimism and a pandemic rages and people abandon the call to the common good, when we choose optimism and violence breaks out close to home, when we choose optimism and we see the intractability of our politics, when we choose optimism and we see sectarian violence starting to rise, when we try to choose optimism when trans kids are using as pawns in some sick game to votes, when we try to choose optimism when reproductive freedoms are put in the crosshairs, it is like a gut punch to our soul over and over again, and we begin to try to contort ourselves, to try to salvage our optimistic face, faith that was our foundation. In the past year or so, I have noticed a theme in many of the pastoral conversations that I've had within our congregation, including many people who have not returned to church. Almost to a person, words grasping to convey what they are experiencing. They speak about a wound deep within, a soul wound of having endured presidencies, pandemics, and insurrections that shattered their faith in humanity. For years, the foundation of their faith had rested firmly on reason and the common good being enough, that the decency of our fellow human beings is enough to bring about a future distinctly better than the present. That even if they wouldn't have said it just like this, they believed that humans were on an upward path towards progress, that sure, there's a few hiccups along the way, but the past five years have destroyed that faith. Maybe you yourself might count yourself among those who have that soul. 
Maybe you have retreated into denial or complacency or despair. Maybe you have met this breach of faith with a fierce activist combat to fight the heartache within, to keep optimism on life support. But the evidence keeps pouring in. Chaotic and confusing as it is, impossible to discern, but often impossible to deny its heart-wrenching nature. Sometimes, optimism is too heavy a burden to bear, and so we think the only option is to sink into despair. It's time, friends, to leave an optimistic faith behind. We have to untether our faith, our trust, from its boom and bust cycles, the whiplash of hope soaring when things go our way only to be decimated when the arc slams in the other direction. A faith that relies on outcomes must cherry-pick evidence to prevent an inevitable spiral into despair. What we need now, like in every other moment of history, is not to disengage from the truth of this moment or divest ourselves from our responsibility to be part of creating more justice, more beauty, and a more diverse existence. And so we cannot get lost in the world of despair if that means conceding to the forces of evil. Even, and maybe especially when, that despair is justified. We need people who practice hope. The difference between optimism and hope is that optimism says everything's going to be all right. And hope says I can do something to make that so, to make it more likely that that is so, even slightly, even microscopically. That as Vichelle Havel wrote, hope is a dimension of the soul, an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well. It is from that internal conviction, not drawn from the evidence of the present or the past, but in the internal power contained within life itself to persist and to claim a future, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, to claim a will to a future. That when we untether our hope from results, we join in beauty and regeneration as the late contemporary Christian mystic Thomas Merton wrote in a letter to a friend, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your worth, your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no results at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get more used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, 
the truth of the work itself. You gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. And what we are learning about cognitive neuroscience is that we don't need to be hopeful to cultivate hope. That we don't need to feel hope in our hearts. We don't have to think that we can make a difference to grow hope, to grow our hope muscles. Stanford neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman's research found that our beliefs about the world, about ourselves, are constructed not primarily from our thoughts or feelings, but from our behaviors. It's not so much, I think, therefore my, I am, but rather, I do, therefore I am. That our identities and beliefs are constructed not from our thoughts and our feelings, but our actions. And so if we want to change our beliefs, our outlook on life, if we want to grow our capacity to hope and spend less time in despair or complacency, we don't need to convince our minds that hope is justified. We don't even need to instill hopeful feelings in our hearts. All we must do is make simple, small, hopeful actions. Exercising our agency. Practicing in tiny ways that we can do something, and not for ideas, but for people. And those actions, small as they might be, demonstrate to ourselves something about life, not optimism, but hope. That we can actually neurologically hope with our hands that hope grows from our hands. Even when we don't believe it or feel it, that hope actually doesn't care about our feelings, but rather cares what we do in spite of it. Beautiful things, hopeful steps. When we feel stuck, we can simply start to move our bodies. And that is even enough when we feel despair, that feeling of being trapped, that we can't do anything. Even the simple decision to move our bodies can train ourselves that we have the power to change something, even if it be our internal state. I'm going to interrupt myself just quickly because I want to say this a little bit more clearly and underscore it. Our brains can't make the distinction between us moving forward physically and making progress emotionally. That feeling of moving forward, of, uh, of having control, of being able to figure out that next step, are, are neurologically, the similarities between getting unstuck physically and getting unstuck mentally are very much aligned. And so that feeling of being trapped and making the decision even just to move our bodies is revolutionary because, quite frankly, it tricks our brains into thinking that we aren't stuck. That fight and flight reflex gets relaxed because we feel like we're making progress towards something. And when we feel like we're making progress towards something, our thoughts and our feelings start to align, right? We start to get, get that hope and that, that internal state of hopefulness gets cultivated. 
And of course, it's not like everything all at once, but it is kind of these small unlocking, these neurological pathways that we start to reinforce. Um, so being stuck doesn't feel so much uh, like being caught in quicksand, but it, it, it feels like an opportunity to reset, um, a, a, an opportunity for growth. All right, I'm going to let myself continue. That hope is built in thousands of small microscopic choices and moments when a person holds fast to the knowing that the world doesn't have to be like this and decides to act even in the smallest of ways. The paradox of hope is that we can do hope even if we have abandoned hopefulness because suddenly hope doesn't depend on the realities realities that are outside of our control. Hope is something I can do. Hope is a verb. Hope is an action. We hope with our hands, not our minds or our hearts. And the more I take hopeful actions, the more I prove to myself that I can have an impact even microscopically and paradoxically then, the more hopeful thoughts spring to my mind and the more my heart is filled with hopefulness. Hope is taking a step. Trusting that as we take the step towards the good, that the world changes, that the possibilities conspire, that partners reach out, that life joins us. But most importantly, hope is about the capacity to take the step. So we should stop asking ourselves, is this going to work? And instead ask, is this the right thing for me to do to build hope and trust? Trust that action to work on us. Because as the Reverend Victoria Safford reminds us, our mission is to plant ourselves at the gates of hope, not the prudent gates of optimism, which are somewhat narrower, nor the stalwart gates of common sense, nor the strident gates of self-righteousness, which creak on shrill and angry hinges, nor the cheerful, flimsy, garden gates of everything's going to be all right, but a different, sometimes lonely place, the place of truth-telling about your own soul first and its condition, the place of resistance and defiance, the place of the ground from which you see the world both as it is and as it could be, as it will be, the place from which you glimpse not only struggle but joy in the struggle, and we can stand there beckoning beckoning and calling and telling people what we are seeing, asking people what they see. Hope begins with our hands, not our hearts or our minds. And so if you ever feel locked in despair, paralyzed by forces that tell you that nothing you do will matter, remind yourself that these hands are all you need to begin the journey of hope yet again. We hope with our hands, just as we can pray with our feet. We are people of hope. And the world needs us more than ever. Amen and blessed be. If, if you were to offer me the choice 
between do I want to live a life that is hopeful or a life that is despairing, I I, I 100% would choose hopeful, right? I mean, it feels better to be moving through the world and feel like there is something that we can do. That regardless of what life throws at us, regardless of the weights of war and racism, regardless of the weight of the complications of modern living, that we are without the capacity to be a bridge in that gap, that tragic gap between the world as it is and the world as it might yet be, that world that we dream about. I see hope as that action of entering that chasm and being able to find life and joy in that space. Not ignoring, not through ignorance, but through an embrace. An embrace that says, I am not going to let myself move through these boom and bust cycles of hope that is built on optimism. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to stake out a space where I can find and cultivate this capacity within me, and I'm going to find others that help me do that. And I'm not going to worry about doing it all. I'm not going to worry that all the work isn't going to get done. I'm not going to worry that, well, it might not have the right results in the end or that might result in nothingness. What I'm going to worry about is looking ahead and saying, as Thomas Merton said, Is this the right thing? Does this bring more joy, more love, more beauty, a more diverse existence, a more complicated love, a more courageous, joyful resistance into the world? And if it does, I'm going to take that step. I'm going to take that step and I'm going to find people that can take that step with me. And sure, all of it might come to nothing, but that is not within my control. That's That's not mine. It's not mine to hold the fate of the universe in my heart, in my hands, in my mind. What is mine are the faces and the people and the possibilities that are around me every day. And what I choose to do with them, that is mine. And I'm going to choose to feel hopeful. This is, this is like such a minor thing, and yet it helps me all the time. So when I'm stuck with all the things I need to do, I've been told, hey, you should write a to-do list of all the things you should do. And when I do that, when I embrace that, when I write that to-do list, which is comprehensive, for me, and this is just for me, I get completely overwhelmed and filled with despair and anxiety when I see all of the things I need to do. I just, it's debilitating. I feel overwhelmed. But if I ask myself, what's the most important thing that I need to do? And then I do that thing. Well, guess what? It opens up a door. It opens up a door to that next thing. And I get momentum. And I think hope, if anything, is about momentum. It's about a momentum for that will to the future. It is about a momentum of one action to the next. It's about a momentum of saying, once I start moving, 
the laws of physics make it easier for me to take that next step. And so what the, what the hurdle, the hurdle that is in front of me is just simply how do I move from a state of non-moving to a state of moving? That is the most important part of hope is how do we move when we're stuck to simply start? How do we simply begin? Because once we've begun, like going on that walk, like tackling that one thing, like reminding ourselves that we have capacity to exercise control over something, well, other things become easier. Philosophically, this is a shift from kind of a utilitarian perspective that's trying to create the, the largest good it is a perspective that says, actually, what's most important is for us to do the right thing in the moment and to cultivate our capacity to do the right things through practice. Aristotle would call this virtue ethics. I think about it more as hopeful, momentum-esque living. At the, at the end of that Thomas Merton quote, he says, when we focus not on ideas, but on doing the right thing, it brings us to people. And people are the transformative power of this world. Our world needs more hope-filled people. Our world doesn't need more naive, toxic positivity. Our world needs more hope-filled people who don't shy away from seeing what is true, but find a way to joyfully inhabit that crap. And one of the things that I return to again and again in my faith, and one of the reasons that I am a church person, and this is where I get preachy, so if you're not a church person, you can, you can listen with curiosity or you can sign off. But one of the reasons I go to church is because I want to be around other people to remind myself of what's most important because I can forget and I want that momentum, the momentum of practicing together to launch me into my week, to launch me into my life because I don't find that practice in other parts of my life. And so that's why I just, I want to end today just saying thank you and I am so grateful, grateful for uh, a community of people willing to go deeper, a community of people willing to find joyful resilience, a community of people who are practicing being human in all of its complexities. On Sunday, we, we sang this song, Hope With Our Hands, which is our kind of closing song that we use here in the podcast. And I'm going to play it in its entirety to kind of bring us out because I think its message really has been resonating and working on me. And so I, I think it might be helpful. It might be helpful for you. So I hope it is. This ground below us, this ground below us, is holy, holy, is holy, holy. This air that breathes us, this air that breathes us, is holy, holy, is holy, holy. So we're gonna hold with our hands.
our hands, pray with our feet for the world that we love, for the world that we need. Oh, with our hands, pray with our feet for the world that we love, for the world that we need.